Hello, and welcome to the 2020 State of the Schools. I'm Pat Pastore, PNC Regional President for Cleveland. PNC is a longstanding supporter of education, starting with our commitment to early childhood education through PNC Grow Up Great, our $500 million initiative to help children receive high quality pre-K education. Supporting the Cleveland Metropolitan School District is so important because education is a catalyst for sustained economic growth. An educated workforce will help our regional economy thrive for generations to come. In this challenging environment, all of us must come together to provide the resources students need to succeed. For its part, PNC recently made a grant to the district to provide computer equipment and internet access to assist with remote learning. Finally, I wanna thank Eric Gordon for his leadership and all the teachers and school staff for being on the front lines and doing everything they can to ensure CMSD scholars make the most of this school year. Good afternoon. I'm Trina Evans, Director of Corporate Center and Chief of Staff at KeyBank. I am pleased and proud to welcome you to the 2020 State of the Schools Virtual Forum. This year, back to school is certainly different than prior years. And with change comes new obstacles to overcome and also new opportunities to pursue. KeyBank is proud to support the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, working alongside leaders, parents, and our community partners to support each scholar's biggest dreams and goals. At KeyBank, we believe being part of the community means working to make it better, which is why we do just that through philanthropy, outreach, equity, and access to resources to create thriving communities in the places we work and call home. We believe in every Cleveland Metropolitan School District Scholar. They are the change agents of our future who will continue and carry out our work in the communities we so proudly serve. Again, welcome and thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy what I know will be an engaging discussion. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today is September 22nd and you're with a virtual City Club Forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN Idea Stream. We're grateful for their partnership. We're here today for the annual State of the Schools Address delivered by Cleveland Metropolitan School District CEO Eric Gordon. This will be his 10th State of the Schools and, of course, his first one to be delivered virtually. Thanks, COVID. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed so much of how we conduct our lives. How and when to reopen schools had been the subject of much debate. Today marks day 15 of the 2021 school year in Cleveland and the third week of fully remote learning for CMSD students. In July, CMSD and other large urban districts across the state made the decision to start the school year with remote learning, and it's no small feat. After Governor DeWine closed schools in March, the Cleveland schools and many of their counterparts had to help fam families bridge the digital divide. Cleveland has nearly 40,000 students and is one of the nation's poorest and worst connected cities. 
Mr. Gordon addressed the City Club in May and outlined his plans for addressing the local digital divide as well as the larger national effort to move Internet access from a luxury to a piece of national infrastructure. And today, Mr. Gordon discusses the progress made to bridge the digital divide, the current challenges facing the district, and the work being done to confront those challenges. He'll also share his plans for the future, the opportunity at hand to reimagine public education as we closely examine the inequities that exist in our communities and think differently about how to address them. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794 to text your questions. Or if you're on Twitter, please tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. And now, members and friends of the City Club, I present to you Eric Gordon, CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District.
Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me for this City Club virtual event, marking my 10th State of the Schools Address as CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Before I begin my formal remarks, I want to take a moment to thank our third through fifth grade All-City Virtual Choir for the inspiration that brings us all together today. Thank you to the City Club of Cleveland for hosting this address again, particularly this year, as our school district and community faces unprecedented challenges brought on by this global pandemic. I want to thank a number of people across Northeast Ohio for all you've done for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, especially over the past six months as we've all responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. To those listed on your screen and to anyone else whom I may have forgotten to include, please know how incredibly grateful I am for your community leadership and your individual or collective contributions and support. And to all of you, thank you for joining this forum today. I am grateful for the opportunity to reflect on the state of our schools with you. 2020, very bad, would not recommend. Last year, I spoke with you about Newton's laws of motion, remember? Any object in a state of uniform motion will remain in that state of motion unless an external force acts on it. Who could have guessed last September that a year later we would be recovering from an external force so significant that the entire world stopped? If I had asked you then where we would be in a year, how many of you would have answered, living in the midst of a global pandemic? In fact, if I had asked you even last April, I doubt that any of you would have imagined that a 100% virtual delivery of education would be our current reality in Cleveland. But it is. Last spring, we were told to shut down schools, first for a three-week extended spring break, and then subsequently asked to close schools for the rest of the school year. Through emergency legislation, we were told to do our best to keep our students enriched and engaged. And we were told that if we did that, we would flatten the curve so we could get things back to normal. But as Ohio began reopening, it became increasingly clear that the model didn't work. While Ohio did flatten the curve, the virus wasn't eradicated by spring as hoped. Instead, it became clear that we would be operating indefinitely with the virus still in our midst, and unlike last spring, CMSD would have to reopen schools this fall in a radically different way. Compounding this challenge was the realization that not only had the novel coronavirus not been eliminated, but it had, in fact, begun to spread more rapidly across Cleveland and other areas of Ohio. Early modeling had predicted the virus would be all but gone by May, but in late June and early July, the actual trend showed exposure to and the spread of coronavirus in Cleveland had increased by 54% in just 21 days as we learned to live in this strange new world. After reviewing public health data and after surveying our parents, caregivers, and educators, it became clear to the Board of Education and to me that beginning the 2020 school year in a remote learning environment was our only legitimate choice. COVID-19 has disrupted education in Cleveland and across the state and country. It has altered how we operate our schools and deliver instruction for our 37,000 kids. But it did so much more. In literally a few short days, the novel coronavirus also put on full display the glaring inequities that my scholars, their families, and our educators have faced for decades. Make no mistake, inadequate access to food, affordable childcare, access to technology, and to reliable high-speed internet have existed in our community for decades, and all of us knew it. 
But when overnight people everywhere were told to stay home and use the internet to get information, to connect with their school, to apply for unemployment or public assistance, and even to go to the doctor, the world went dark and silent for nearly half of our kids and families. COVID-19 didn't cause these inequities, but it did make it impossible to ignore them, to pretend that they don't really exist or don't really matter. At the same time, something else happened to jolt the American conscience. The killing of George Floyd exposed not just another singular, unique tragedy, but it illuminated a compounding series of tragedies that have persisted in communities like ours for years and that have not only continued but seemingly accelerated since that awful Monday, May 25th, when our nation's racial divide moved front and center on the news and spilled into the streets of America. Just as COVID-19 made it impossible to ignore the inhumane disparities in access to basic human needs that my kids and families experience, the killing of George Floyd made it impossible for us to ignore the ravages of racism and social injustice in the lives of the poorest and most disenfranchised among us. It made it impossible to ignore the unconscionable inequities that have plagued people and children of color for generations. The earth is angry. A wise man spoke these words to me even before this pandemic erupted. The earth is angry. I think of those words often as I watch our nation become more and more polarized on the kinds of issues that should unite us in times of crisis. Equity, social justice, civil rights for all Americans, a global public health emergency. It appears Mother Earth has gotten just angry enough to hit the pause button. So, what do we make of all of this? What do we do? How do we respond? As we began planning for this school year, Cleveland Teachers Union President Sherry Obrensky said, I don't know what this fall is going to look like, but I do know what it's not going to look like. It's not going to look like last fall. And she was right. It's only day 15 of the 2020-2021 school year, and only our third week in a fully remote learning environment. Ask any teacher in the district, and he or she will tell you how much we all wish we could be back in our classrooms with all of our kids every day. But we can't. I'm not saying we shouldn't, I'm saying we can't. Public health rules now require us to put no more than 14 kids on school buses built for 50. To maintain social distancing, we are restricted to putting only 12 kids in classrooms designed for 25. It's no longer safe for hundreds of high school students to pass simultaneously every 50 minutes for three-minute class changes in our hallways. We can't push our desks together to work on a group task or teach without wearing masks and shields. Like districts across the nation, and in fact around the world, we've adapted to these current circumstances. We've moved into remote learning and planned hybrid models too. But these are all temporary solutions. We all know there will come a day when COVID-19 is conquered, a day when we can go back to normal. But should we? What if this isn't just a pause? What if this is instead a reset? What if this is our chance to closely examine the inequities that exist in our communities and think differently about how to address them? Indeed, this is an opportunity for all of us to examine the American experience for people of color living in a country whose systems and institutions were designed for white people by white people. And this is an opportunity to design them differently. The late Audre Lorde wrote, and I quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, 
but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. The people of Cleveland know that perhaps better than anyone. Nine years ago, when I became CEO, I assumed responsibility for Ohio's worst performing school district. CMSD was facing crushing budget deficits and had lost all public trust. At that time, a friend and colleague of mine told me, Eric, you will either be our best superintendent or our last. That, of course, remains to be seen. Seriously, though, look at how we responded. We didn't improve over the last eight years by doing more of the same. Instead, we banded together as a community and reinvented our school system. The result? In the city with America's highest childhood poverty, in the city rated worst connected in the country, in the city ranked as the United States' ninth most segregated community, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District went from being the worst performing school district in Ohio nine years ago to one of Ohio's fastest improving school districts today. Our graduation rate, a mere 52.2% in 2011, soared to 80.1% this year. Our 80.9% graduation rate for Cleveland's black students and our 82.6% graduation rate for Hispanic students each bested their statewide peers by over five percentage points. And thanks to this community's collective efforts to create Say Yes Cleveland, every one of those graduates now has access to a post-secondary trade school, two-year or four-year college, tuition-free. If that is what we could do with our own self-generated reset, imagine what we can do now. What new tools have we been given and how will we use them? In the pre-COVID world, it was considered nearly impossible for CMSD to be a one-to-one -one district, providing each child with an iPad, Chromebook, tablet, or laptop to support his or her learning. In fact, as late as last March, our advanced placement computer science teachers assigned low-tech homework, knowing that their students didn't have the computer or the internet to practice actual computer science at home. Imagine that in an advanced placement class. In CMSD today, every student now has a tablet or laptop computer, and their families and caregivers have hotspots or other access to the internet, a large number of them for the first time in their lives. In the old system, time defined learning as we dutifully marched children through 180-day school years, sitting in one 50-minute class after another, collecting semester after semester of Carnegie units so that each student earned a diploma on time. Today, students and teachers are experiencing new and different ways of using time to support each student's unique learning needs. Teachers are recording lessons so that students who can't attend the synchronous class on time can instead watch the lesson at a time that's more convenient for them. These same recorded lessons give struggling students the ability to replay their teachers' live lessons as often as they need, taking as little or as much time as needed to learn and master the content and all without the discomfort of raising their hands in front of their peers and disclosing that they didn't understand it the first time. In our remote learning environment, every Wednesday is now dedicated to providing time for all teachers to work with small groups of students, to provide individual tutoring and supports, to hold office hours, and to check in with parents and caregivers to help them access their child's lessons and monitor their progress. Every teacher is doing this, and today, teachers are assigning students asynchronous content, projects, activities, self-guided instruction, and more, empowering students with more voice, choice, and flexibility in when and how their learning is completed. Imagine for a moment if we retain this one new, more sensible way of operating as part of our reset. 
Why would we return to having 25 students sitting in one room for the same period of time if we know we can better serve the 5 to 10 students who have mastered the content by empowering them to move on without waiting for the rest of the class? By enabling those students who are ready and able to do so to work on independent work that augments and continues their acceleration, we simultaneously decrease the teacher's class sizes by 5 to 10 students for the moment so that she can focus on the kids who need more support. And what if, in the post-COVID world, we kept Wednesdays devoted to working with only those students who need the extra support, while students who are already on track complete their own independent work as well? There's been a lot of talk right now about lost learning and our need to return to school as soon as possible to curtail that loss. But that approach to reopening schools is really just another manifestation of time as the driver of learning and a get-back-to-normal response. The concept of making up for lost learning essentially roots us in the ancient method of measuring our kids' learning against a predefined schedule of what content should be learned and by when, and then comparing student progress with their peers across the state to determine how much learning was lost. But here's the secret. We did not lose learning. What we really lost was time for learning. Don't get me wrong. It's a matter of educational science that learners who do not remain actively stimulated in a content until it becomes solidly anchored in their brain schema will forget much of what they were taught. But that's different than lost learning. We didn't lose the ability to learn or to teach. So instead of focusing on lost learning, which forces teachers to identify the deficits in a student's knowledge compared to what they're supposed to know at any given time, we need to focus on identifying each child's unfinished learning so we can teach him or her precisely what they need to continue and complete that learning. Sound radical? What do we have to lose? For all of the efforts to improve education here in Cleveland and across the nation, now and over several decades, America's students still consistently rank far lower than many of their international peers. After all these years, and despite all of our efforts, achievement gaps can still be absolutely predicted by the wealth of your community and the color of your skin. Is that really what we want to return to? We have a chance this winter, next spring, or whenever it is finally safe to fully reopen our school buildings to reemerge better than when we left them in March. We will return this time with full access to technology. Students and teachers will return having defined and practiced a new learning relationship, one that is far more flexible and nimble than the practices they left behind. Beyond this increased capacity, we will emerge with the opportunity to rethink long-standing conventions, the very conventions that have, for generations, perpetuated the enormous inequities COVID-19 and George Floyd put on full display for everyone to see. In this time of crisis, when the entire world has been forced to hit the pause button, we have an opportunity to look back and reflect on where we were. More importantly, we have the opportunity to look forward and to replace conditions and practices that have too long put Cleveland's kids at a disadvantage with their peers. The hard truth is, it won't be easy. History tells us that often in times of crisis, the very opposite of what we hope for happens. In her book, The Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein documents decades of evidence suggesting that in times of crisis or when disaster occurs, not only do the privileged and powerful retain their privilege, more often than not their power actually grows. In her view, this increase in power and authority is deliberately achieved. She claims that the privileged and powerful 
whether conservative or liberal, use the public's disorientation following massive collective shocks, wars, terrorist attacks, natural disasters, to achieve control. I'll leave it to you to debate the merits of our argument. But what is clear to me is that in every American city, in every state, and as a nation, we are making critical decisions as we respond to this global pandemic. With our words and actions, we are deciding whether this will be a moment until we can get back to normal, or whether this will be a movement toward a nation of cities and states that are more fair, just, and good. We can choose to look away and pretend that we cannot see the vast inequities that continue to perpetuate racial disparities across our country, or choose to redistribute power and privilege more fairly. We can work to perpetuate the status quo or disrupt it, and we can choose to either pause for the moment or to reset. In either case, like every other organization's recovery, our districts will take time. If we had received a state report card this year, we would most certainly have lost ground because of the school shutdown. But I know we can do this. In fact, what makes the possibility of a reset in the CMSD so desirable to me is that there is no place in America that's more prepared to do so than Cleveland. Our last decade of work together is proof of that. As LeBron James said so powerfully about our city and its resilience, in Northeast Ohio, nothing is given. Everything is earned. You work for what you have. Our city's defend the land attitude continues to drive our choices and our actions, and it's time to defend the land again. Our district is at a critical crossroad for our children and their future. All of the progress, the record-breaking increases in graduation rates, math and reading scores, and gap closing will be lost without the continued support of the people of Cleveland this year. Issue 68 in November represents as much a decision point for Cleveland as COVID-19 does for the world. Eight years ago, we passed a school levy to enable our implementation of the Cleveland Plan. Four years ago, to continue our progress, our community renewed that levy. And here we are again. Eight years may seem like a long time, but it's actually only a brief moment in our district's 183-year history. In fact, eight years is only two-thirds of the way through a child's school-age journey and we've seen what we've done so far. The transformation of Cleveland's public schools was never just about changing Ohio law, enacting the Cleveland Plan, or passing a levy. The gains we have made together, the reforms that we have worked so hard on over the last eight years, and the strategies that are working in CMSD during the worst public health crisis of our lifetime are a matter of social justice. The success we continue to achieve against incredible odds can only be achieved with the kind of creative thinking that emerges in times of crisis, the kind of action that is bold enough to reject the status quo, and the kind of courage it takes to replace failing systems with ones far more meaningful and relevant to the lives of our children and their future. Never before have the words, we are all in this together, held more meaning for our students, our families, our educators, our partners, and our community. What will we do to finish that journey? With Issue 68, we will ask Cleveland's voters to once again defend the land, to renew our commitment for Cleveland's children now when it's more important than ever, and to signal that in Cleveland, this is not just a pause, not just a moment. In Cleveland, it's indeed already a movement, something my students call a moment for life. On behalf of our scholars and their families, 
Thank you for your partnership and your unwavering belief in Cleveland's kids. Thank you most for your continued investment in and support of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Thank you. Virtual City Club Forum. It's the Cleveland Metropolitan School District State of the Schools. I'm Dan Molthrop, CEO of the City Club of Cleveland, joined by Eric Gordon, the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. And Eric Gordon, um, I want to thank you. Can you just tell us who we were listening to, the moment for life, before we move on to the so Q&A? That is the All City, uh, our All City Arts High School Choir, and we started with our three through five choir. And I shared those as the beginning and end because that's what we were doing in remote learning last spring before we made all of this effort. So for anyone who's worried that kids aren't happy, kids aren't learning, you just need to look at those kids. That was um, that was very impressive, and uh, and I want to recognize those uh, those young people, the the choir, the singing, the dancing, uh, the dancers as well. Was that an original song that they wrote? You know, I honestly don't know. I, it's probably something I should know. But well, I know, it was fantastic. Um, anyway. We used it for our graduations, and it just really spoke to me when I'm thinking about this difference from the moment that we're in or the movement we can make. I'm sure somebody who knows will uh, will let us know, will correct correct me for assuming it was a, a, an original song or correct me for assuming that it's not. Um, if you'd like to do so, tweet, uh, tweet your correction or your question at the City Club. We'll work it in. And if you have a question for Eric Gordon about the state of the schools and what's happening this year, what's happening next year or in the in the year ahead, 
please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or as I said, you can tweet it at the City Club. We got a question yesterday, Eric, uh, from one of your partners at the Breakthrough Schools, John Zitzner, the founder of, uh, of EPREP, which was the first of the Breakthrough Schools. Um, or one of the founding founding schools of the of the breakthrough schools. He writes, "I've known you for nearly 14 years since you first came to Cleveland, and people ask me a lot, how long is Eric staying in Cleveland? He has to be in demand in other cities. What should I tell them?" Well, you know, I only control half of that decision. The board of education controls the other half, mm-hmm. um, but. I'm here to stay. I want to do this one time really well and candidly never again. This is hard work. I want to make sure we get it right for our kids and our city. Um, and it's just, it continues to be, uh, you know, my life's passion. I ask myself every year at the beginning of the year, am I still making a difference and am I still having fun? And if I can say yes to those two questions and the board will have me, you'll see me again next year. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, you said you want to do it once and once only. You've done it now for, you're in your 10th year. Um, and is there a, a moment at which, and you, and you said you want to get it right, what does getting it right look like? What would, would there be a moment when you say, okay, my work here is done? Well, I think that it's always a continuous improvement journey. Um, you know, I'm really proud of the gains we've made. Our reading and math scores increased, our achievement gaps have closed, our graduation rate over 80% now, but there's always more to be done. Again, I think that the, there will come a point in every leader's career where you are no longer the leader that is able to keep making that progress. And at that point, then I have a responsibility to step out of the way or the board has the responsibility to choose a different direction. I actually don't think today's that moment. The reason I lifted this speech is because I think we have another opportunity to you know, examine again and go even further in making a better system for our kids and our community. Um, here's another question for you. Are we resuming in-person learning in November? If yes, how are we going to manage social distancing in the hallways, doorways, especially with winter coming and cafeterias? How will classes work if only 14 kids and the teacher may be in a room? So we have not yet made a decision for second quarter, and we've been careful not to do it too quickly. We want to continue to look at the public health data. It's improving in Cleveland right now, which is great news, but we also know there's a lot of forecasting that October, November, December uh, could be bad because of winter conditions. So we'll want to understand that. We'll also want to resurvey our families and caregivers and our educators to make sure that they're confident that we can be safe in our schools. We are marking our buildings right now so that they are socially distanced, six feet markings on floors, moving desks around, uh, those sorts of things, temperature checks at the door. Uh, But it will require a very different way of using our buildings if and when it's the right time for us to return. And we'll make that announcement with plenty of time for our kids and families to uh, move through that adjustment uh, when we are able to do so. How do you determine it, Eric? The um, is there a you know a, a level below which when the cases drop below a certain level in the city of Cleveland or in Cuyahoga County, is there a trigger? So we're relying on really three sets of information. First is the state's county health system, the red, orange, yellow. Um, and the direction of the data, particularly here in Cleveland. Um, I mentioned that earlier in the speech that at the time we made the decision for remote, we were seeing Cleveland, uh, the county in red and the uh, Cleveland area seeing significant spread. Right now the county's in orange and things are improving, so that's good news. 
The second, again, is that data from families, whether they will actually send children back to school because of their confidence in our safety and our ability to do so. And then the third is learning. If hybrid learning is working really well, it may not actually make sense to have teachers try to both teach live and remote at the same time so that we can split classes up. So those three sets of data will inform again our decision for second quarter, just like they informed our decision for first quarter. And we expect to make that at about week five or six of, of the quarter so that families have time to adjust if we are going to move to hybrid for second quarter. If you're just joining us, we're with Eric Gordon today at the City Club Forum. Uh, this is the state of the schools. Eric is the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Eric, question about the levy, uh, which is on the ballot in November. If it doesn't pass, teachers will be laid off in January. That's also kind of a question. Will they be laid off in January? What's going to happen to all of the students? Won't this make classes larger and thus hinder social distancing? I guess that question also assumes that there's going to be some a return to in-person learning by then. Yeah, so the levy represents $66 million annually for the district, which is 12% of our net budget. Um, so if the levy were to fail, it's not. We're going to pass it. But if it were to fail, we would be facing really significant cuts. Um, not only were we at the end of the levy cycle pre-COVID, uh, but we've also spent a lot of additional resources responding to COVID, buying all of the technology, buying all the hotspots, uh, running the food programs and those sorts of things. And that is money that we would have otherwise been using for second semester of this year. So if it were to fail, and again, it's not because we're going to pass it, um, but we would then have to make uh, significant cuts mid-year uh, simply to balance the budget. Um, and there's no way that we're going to make cuts of 12% of the budget without impacting kids and families. And so that's why we've got to get this done. Here's an, another question about the positive aspects of our pandemic that you spoke to. Um, it's given new focus to Jonathan Kozel's author, Jonathan Kozel, the author of Shame of the Nation and Reestablishing uh, of Education Apartheid in America and Savage Inequalities. It's given us all a new opportunity to focus on teaching and learning with poverty in mind. Now self-learning has increased parents being more involved with their children's education, hopefully. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about these, um, these positive aspects, the, the differentiated learning that you uh, illuminated and how you might be able to hang on to more of that? Well, I, I do want to say I think that that's a decision yet to be made because lots of the things that I suggested we could do in, our, in my speech today relies on what state policy and national policy will permit. So if we simply work to get back to normal to seat time and Carnegie units, we will lose some of the opportunities that we're lifting up here. Now, having said that, our students, parents, and families are defining a very different learning relationship. Literally just yesterday evening, I had a parent of a uh, ninth grade student new to the district who was sharing how pleased she was with the time my teachers are taking uh, to help the, her son acclimate to the school, you know, being a freshman in a building that he's never actually walked through the doors. Um, and the, just checking in to make sure we're okay. And then building this relationship about what work is being done live like we're doing now called synchronous. And what are the things that that student can do on his or her own asynchronously, independently, to have more voice and choice in his learning. And then this really important Wednesday where we actually pause and say, let's check in with kids. Let's do small group tutoring or individual tutoring. Let's make sure that kids who need accelerated know what they should be doing to go more quickly. Let's check in with parents and make sure that parents know what's going on. This is a much more flexible, nimble way of working. But the difference is 
that we have to give up the notion that everybody should be in the same place at the same time, and we have to get focused on what I call unfinished learning, finding out where each child is, and then creating a learning plan that moves that child to the stated goal. We do this actually in universities. The four-year graduation rate in most universities is judged in four to six years. So why do we have such rigid rules still in place in our K-12 system that actually says get enough information to get a D and pass to the next class instead of saying take the time you need to really learn the content deeply so that you can use it as you keep moving forward. My bet is we would accelerate all kids much more quickly if we were to think about learning as the driver and time as the variable instead of time as the constant like we do right now. This is a, a concept that others often refer to as, um, as a learning for mastery. Um, it's a similar, so just to you know, connect the dots for people who may have been part of other conversations. Here's a, a question from one of your parents, um, not your parent, but a parent of, the, of, a, of some of your students. Um, she says, hello, my name is Sierra Brooks, and I have three girls enrolled in CMSD. My main priority is their health. Mr. Gordon, my question is in the best interest of our kids. How do you feel about remote learning for the rest of 2020? Thank you. You know, we're going to make uh, the decision on health and safety first. And so if that means remote learning for the rest of 2020, uh, then that's what we're going to do. Um, I also uh, am committed that even if we do think that we can bring many kids back healthy and safely, uh, that may not mean every kid, and so we will maintain some form of virtual learning for those kids and families like Ms. Brooks who says, look, you may be okay, I'm not yet. Um, we have to have that plan in place too. Um, but health and safety is the top priority for me. We are 86% children of color, and we know COVID has struck communities of color at four times the rate of the white community. My families are often essential workers who are going to work every day while we're working remotely or doing these forums remotely. And we know the health disparities that existed pre-COVID that impact my community. So I am very aware of the health needs of my community, and I am not going to be the person that puts them to risk. Who is responsible for your health? Is it doctors, or who's, and who is responsible for your learning? Students with teachers and counselors and parents, learning is more than a test score. This is more of a comment, I suppose. Parents, reminder, reminder that childbearing is different than child rearing. But here's, the, here's a question. Many families who were dependent on the schools for the meals are now recently faced with food insecurity. How can we support those families and get meals to them when needed? Yeah, so we redesigned our meal program over the summer to make it more accessible. Uh, so our families now have two different meal options. One is a daily pickup at any K-8 school. Uh, what that allows is more fresh uh, foods because you get a, every single day a breakfast and a lunch. Um, but we heard also that that wasn't always convenient, and so we have a weekly pickup option at 17 high schools. The limit is we have to have more preserved foods that will last for the full week, but it also gives us uh, a more convenient pickup. That is available to any school-age child, whether they go to a CMSD school or not. We also are partnered with the food bank to continue to make sure that we have opportunities for food over the uh, summer. Um, and we have worked with the state of Ohio to get the additional pandemic EBT dollars uh, into our families. And there's a second uh, group of those EBT cards that just got approved literally yesterday. Question uh, again about, um, about this remote learning situation that's very difficult for some. What are the supports and consequences for parents who are unable or unwilling to ensure that their children are meeting their academic requirements during this time? 
Well, I think we need to start with supports and not jump quickly to, to consequences. Um, first, I think we have to assume every parent's doing the very best they can. Um, and I have said, and it's even printed in our reopening plan, I'm not asking parents to be great sixth grade math teachers, but I am asking you to be a great parent. Your kids need you now more than ever. Um, I'm secondly asking parents to use every opportunity as a learning opportunity. So if you watch TV together, if it's a sitcom, what made it funny? Talk about that out loud, right? Um, pay the bills together, cook together, shop together. Take natural events and make them explicit learning by talking about them. And then the third is remember, none of us have ever lived through a global pandemic. Um, and so it is okay to ask for help. And so we mailed a help card with uh, phone numbers to every resident in Cleveland, whether they had children or not, so that everybody in our city knows how to help children. Um, so I start there. Um, I would say then that this Wednesday is really important for our teachers to have the opportunity to reach out and try to find and help those families who aren't connecting, who are struggling in this environment. We're also talking about which uh, select students we may need to bring back more quickly for some level of live learning because they simply can't do it from home. And we've partnered with our community to create the academic learning pods that you're hearing about in the suburbs. Uh, we have now uh, 29 community partners running 47 sites so that if you have to be at work during the day and can't support your child, there's a safe place for your child to go and the school, your school can help to make that connection. And then finally, and I mentioned this briefly, our teachers are recording their lessons, either pre-recording them or recording them live, so that a student who maybe can't see the lesson at 8.30 because mom or dad or caregiver just can't help at that time can still watch that lesson this evening at 7 o'clock uh, with my parent and still know what my classmates did and what I was asked to do. So we're trying really hard to create a web of supports to support our families. You know, if and when we get to the point where families just simply won't participate, then I think we have to talk about consequences, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think people are trying very hard to support their kids and families, and so it's that relationship with our teachers and our schools that makes that work. Eric, did enrollment keep pace uh, for this year? So enrollment so far has been uh, right about exactly at projection for all grades except for kindergarten and preschool. Uh, kindergarten numbers are low and preschool numbers are very low. Uh, and I think uh, parents really decided I'm just going to wait another year to see if I can uh, get you know kind of back to normal. Um, and I will tell you those numbers were low even when we thought it was going to be hybrid. So it's not simply that I don't think a preschooler or a kindergartner can work in a remote environment, although we actually have evidence they can. I think it is a concern that maybe I'll just wait as a mom or a dad uh, until the earth settles down a little bit before sending my young one to school. Uh, the good news is it's not too late. Uh, there are kindergarten seats and preschool seats available, and any learning and any stimulation, uh, I think, is better than nothing at all. So would really encourage families to uh, still consider enrolling in kindergarten or preschool, uh, whether it be district preschool or our private uh, partners in Preferclee. And a follow-up on the academic learning pods that you mentioned. Um, that increases costs pretty significantly because you, if you're staffing those academic learning pods, then somebody has to pay for the staff person to, to be there and, and manage the students and make sure that they are connecting. Um, are there adequate resources in our community? Or, I mean, the, I assume the budget for the, the, this metro school district is already sort of spoken for. So um, how are you managing that challenge? Well, and so that's why I spent so much time listing the credits this year, and I know I missed people who deserved, I can already think of people, but um, I really wanted our community to understand the all-in effort 
that's going on in Cleveland. So those learning pods is just one example, was a collaboration between Say Yes to Education, the United Way of Greater Cleveland, MyCom, and the Cleveland Foundation to identify out-of-school time partners who used to run programs after school in the quote-unquote real world and say, hey, we actually need out-of-school time support during the day and that we will actually help get you the resources you need to do that. The Cleveland Clinic is another great example, made a big gift of PPE and sanitation materials for those pods, learning pods, um, so that we can have safe places for kids to go. And because of them, we have 1,300 seats available already today. Uh, to prioritize for our essential worker families and for our younger children. And we're continuing to expand that partnership, and I expect it'll grow. We're speaking with Eric Gordon. He's the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, and today is his 10th State of the Schools, the first one that we've done virtually from uh, extreme social distance. He in his office and me in the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN Idea Stream. If you have a question for Eric, please text it to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can tweet it at the City Club, and the team will work it into the program. If you're listening to this uh, asynchronously uh, on uh, on Tuesday night at 11, then um, we're obviously not going to get to your question, but hopefully somebody else will ask it for you. Um, Eric, I wanted to ask you about, uh, or actually one of, your, one of our listeners wanted to ask you specifically about um, the role of athletics right now. Um, the, in the wake of this new norm, CMSD has not offered interscholastic athletics, and according to reports, many CMSD students, student-athletes have left the district. Is there a relationship with scholar enrollment and athletics? Is there a plan in place to bring athletics back to school during this remote learning experience? Well, we keep hearing reports of all of the students that are leaving. Our enrollment data doesn't actually show that, and actually the transfer rules in Ohio uh, make that not impossible, but not as easy as it might sound. Um, we did make the very difficult decision that if we can't be back in school, we probably weren't going to be safe in gymnasiums and playing fields um, either. Um, but I was one of the people that advocated very loudly to get a spring season for fall athletics, which um, we finally did get, in my opinion, too late, but finally did get. And so um, I've charged our athletic commissioner to bring together coaches and athletic directors to plan for that fall season that kids didn't yet get. I've asked them also to think about what winter and spring is going to look like because, you know, we don't have an answer of when we're going to be done with COVID and we do need those extra kinds of activities, but they have to be done safely. And, you know, while there are lots of athletic programs going on out there, there have also been a lot of teams that have quarantined because of COVID-related cases. It's not exempt to athletics, and we have to make sure that safety is not so simply safety of convenience, but that, uh, that we're doing everything we can to keep everybody safe. Um are you concerned at all um, uh, that some students have left for private schools? Look, if students are able to get a safe, healthy education that's going to be good for them, that's what I want. That's what I've wanted for 10 years. Do I want kids and families to leave our district? Of course not. Um, but I have advocated from the day I got in this chair that it's about getting kids the family the choice of education that best meets their needs. Sometimes that's us. We're trying to be that partner. Other times it may simply not be. But again, moving to private school per, for the purpose of athletics does come with eligibility requirements. You cannot simply jump from one to the other mid-season. 
season. And so there are some limits from what's a perception of large numbers of kids leaving to private schools that had already fielded teams and have eligibility requirements. So I would just encourage families, if that's really the, the reason for it, to be careful to make sure you're getting what you hope for and feel safe for for your children. Can you speak specifically to the importance of getting young people in career and tech ed uh, the opportunity for hands-on learning. If in-person learning is not possible in November, would a lab day once a week be possible to allow these students to safely get access to that hands-on learning? Well, I do think that that's an area we're going to need to prioritize. And so first I have to credit our teachers who are doing really amazing things using digital technologies. So, you know, uh, paint booths that are done on a computer, which actually is what we're doing when you're live at Max Hayes anyway. It's a digital, digital paint booth, digital welding. Um, our uh, culinary school that has uh, put the cameras over top just like the chop kitchen so that they can show you the lessons. But none of this ultimately replaces the actual hands-on work. Um, I think there's a few things we can do. Lab days may be a possibility as we start to determine which sets of kids can safely come for what amount of time. Um, but also I think we can forward lots of other content that is less hands-on uh, for this remote period of time so that we can save space and time in the school year where we can really double down on getting in those shops, getting in those uh, kitchens, getting in those other trade spaces, and getting a lot of practice on those skills. And so it's something clearly top of mind. Another question for you uh, from a listener. It's been acknowledged there were some tech issues in week one. Where is the district on that particular learning curve in resolving those issues both for educators and students and families? Yeah, so I think we have to remember that we are the single worst connected city in the country. When we started this conversation last March, we thought we were fourth. The census data update came out, we're the worst. And so we went from being the worst connected city in the country to having to deploy 30,000 devices and over 15,000 hotspots so far. Um, at this point, every child should have a device. If a child does not, they need to be in contact with their school. But it got more complicated because we bought devices from all over the globe, like everybody else did. And so literally, we bought devices in China that then couldn't get here because they fly as the freight underneath path passenger air jets, which are not flying. Uh, we then had to buy multiple different kinds of devices. And so your Lenovo works differently than your Chromebook or works differently than your Acer. And so uh, there are a lot of technology issues that we had to sort through. And then finally, we connected families for some who had never ever had access before. And so the help and support that families needed uh, for things that we may take for granted, I'm looking at your at Dan Malthrop. Uh -huh. um, if you've never experienced the ampersand as the at symbol, how do you describe that on a telephone help call? Right. Or, you know, when somebody says, uh, step one says, connect my device to the internet, I've never done that before. That's really fair, but that takes time. Mm -hmm. And so we were overwhelmed for the first week in getting devices and, and servicing. We're now in the, the second day of the third week. Uh, most kids and families are actively engaged with their devices. We are still working out, you know, different tools and making sure they work smooth. Uh, but the systemic issues are done. We're now really focusing on more individualized issues and that you have with problems with technology. When you and I last spoke uh, at a City Club Friday forum, we spent a lot of time talking about the digital divide. Has the community stepped up to, um, to provide the support and the solutions, the systemic and sort of infrastructure level solutions that you require? 
Uh, the community's done a great job of responding to the short-term problem, and so we've received resources from the COVID Relief Fund, the Digital Divide Fund, to make sure devices are here, hotspots are here. Uh, we just bought another 10,000 hotspots because uh, there are a large number of our families who felt like they did have adequate internet until their children flipped on those devices and jumped on their webinars, and then they found out the pipe to their home was too small. So we have a pretty sizable challenge here. Uh, we are continuing our partnership with Digital C and our Empower CMSD, particularly in some of our least connected neighborhoods. We have not yet, as a community though, landed on a long-term permanent solution that we must put in place. Um, and I, I'll tell you, you know, hotspots are fine and they're getting the job done for now, but I'm not going knocking on doors and telling people that we finally connected to give back that connectivity. I'm going to stay on this issue until we as a community do figure out a long-term solution. Eric, last question for you. Um, what happens if the levy doesn't pass? Well, again, the levy's going to pass. It has to. Um, you know, I'm not an alarmist and I don't like scaring the community. Um, we have nowhere else to cut but kids in classrooms. We will have no choice but to lay off teachers and other educators from every layer of the organization. We will have to cut programming like we did way back 10 years ago. Uh, you know, we will have to face more school closures uh, in the years to come uh, if we don't pass this levy. It is 12% of our net operating budget, $12 for every $100 in the district. Now, I say that, again, answering the question, not to scare people because we are going to pass this. Our kids have demonstrated that when you invest in them, we get better results. We're one of the fastest improving districts in Ohio now. We need to continue that acceleration when we pass issue 68 this fall. So there's a, a forum coming up on October 1st on issue 68, as well as the, um, the levy to support the Cuyahoga County Public Library. And um, that's October 1st, cityclub.org for more information. Eric Gordon is the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. He's joined us for, his, for the State of the Schools. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, thanks to all your colleagues as well who helped in, in preparing to, for today. Thank you so much, Dan. And I want to thank you for joining us as well for the 10th Annual State of the Schools Address featuring Eric Gordon, the CEO of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Thanks also to members, sponsors, and donors and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We can't do it without you. And you can find out more at cityclub.org slash thank you. A couple of quick notes. Later this month, next week, in fact, we're launching a project called Five Days for Democracy. It's a collaboration with the nine library systems across Cuyahoga County, and we invite you to join us to spend just a little bit of time each day for five days thinking about what democracy means to you and why it's important and why it's worth fighting for. You can check it out and sign up at cityclub.org slash five days. Also, last week, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. The first episode featured conversations with David Brooks of The New York Times, former acting attorney general Sally Yates, Michael Eric Dyson, Van Jones, Jill Lepore, many others. You can find out more at, at democracyunchained.io. That's democracyunchained.io. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Thank you for washing your hands and wearing a mask and keeping your distance. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.